This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'm Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in Goldman Sachs Research. In this episode, we're going behind the scenes at Goldman Sachs to explore the surge of cyber attacks and how companies' efforts to counter these threats have evolved. To do that, I'm joined by Matt Chung, Goldman Sachs' chief information security officer, Wes Williams, head of the firm's security incident response team, and Andy Burra, the chief information security officer for our consumer banking business. Matt, Wes, and Andy, welcome to the program. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. Matt, let's start with you. You have more than 30 years of experience in technology, operations, and, and really cybersecurity across Wall Street. Cyber attacks are increasingly getting more sophisticated and destructive. Start by setting the stage and how you've seen companies evolve their approach to cybersecurity. I think it's changed considerably over the years. I remember just 10 years ago, I was working in the UK as a global CISO for a large financial institution, and we were called by the UK government down to 10 Downing Street to talk to Baroness Neville Jones, who was the newly appointed UK cyber czar. And the government had invited 10 or 12 of the top high street banks. We were there specifically to talk about the increasing threat of cyber and how the public and private sectors could work together and to meet that threat. And I remember being in 10 Downing Street around this big office, a big oak table. And the Baroness opens up saying, well, let's talk about the state of where we all are in the banking sector around cyber defense. And nobody wanted to talk. Nobody wanted to share information. We actually considered cyber defense as a competitive edge. And so it was one of the shortest meetings I've ever been in on the topic of cyber. When you fast forward now, information sharing is an absolute must, right? The cyber threat now, the, the tactics and tools and procedures, what we call TTPs, have gotten quite sophisticated. They've become quite destructive. And no one company can defend the whole field. So we rely on our peers to share information. And we rely on governments, whether it's the US, UK, et cetera, to provide us with threat intelligence and give us some help when necessary. And so I think that's been the biggest change in terms of the cyber defense posture. I think it's that willingness to share. And there are a couple of forms within the financial service sector that are dedicated to the sector that I think are quite effective. The FSI SAC, which is the Financial Services Information Sharing and Analysis Center, and the FSARC now is just called the ARC, which is the Analysis and Resilience Center. These are organizations that are geared specifically for sharing information amongst the members of the sector as well as the UK government. So I think we're trending in the right direction. I think more information sharing is necessary. I think now we're not just sharing sort of threats, but we're now starting to share data. We're starting to share analytics. So I think this is the future of cyber defense. And in a sense, we were throwing a curveball, of course, with the pandemic and the hybrid work environment. You know, employees constantly shifting positions. Did that change the cybersecurity landscape for security chiefs? Absolutely. I think, you know, whenever you have a remote workforce, it introduces a new set of threats. The first one is that typically folks that are working from home or maybe they're working on a laptop in a Starbucks, those networks tend to be less secure, right? That's number one. Number two, I think the devices that folks are using, and I'm talking broadly, not here at Goldman Sachs, but just broadly, I think the hardware, the computers, the laptops that folks are using to connect to their companies, I think that they may not be as secure as well, maybe compromised. And then, of course, there is that physical security angle, which is you really don't know who's on the other side of that keyboard. Right? So if you're running analytics around anomalous behavior, looking for odd places for people to be logging in, now instead of having maybe 10,000 a day, now you have 100,000. Right? So it becomes quite difficult from an analytics perspective to be able to detect some of that. And I think probably the final thing, and it's probably not talked about much, but when you're sitting in your house and you're on a laptop, you're kind of by yourself. And 
if you get a phishing email as an example, who do you turn to to ask, hey, does this look odd to you? Does this look suspicious to you? You're sort of on your own. Uh, and so that's sort of information sharing amongst your team or your group or whatever. That doesn't really exist anymore right, in a remote working workplace. So, you know, we all know, for example, that 95% of all cyber breaches start with a phishing attack. So, you know, imagine you get something that really looks like a legitimate email, but maybe in the back of your mind, you're not quite sure who do you call, who do you ask when you're working by yourself. So that's probably one of the biggest risks. And Wes, you manage our 24-7 threat management center. So given everything Matt just said, how has the evolution of this space and these attacks changed the way you approach your job on your team? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's clear there's been so many different types of attacks to consider, right? That so many different dimensions, right? Whether it be our cloud assets, containers, on-premises assets, we're now having to think about brand, reputation, website attacks, supply chain attacks, where you're seeing folks try to introduce malicious software libraries into your code. Business email compromise now, where folks are trying to manipulate you into sending funds to an unintended destination. DDoS attacks regularly make the news, trying to inhibit sites' availability. And then ransomware. I think that's probably very topical as well. So I think you know the combination of all these things has kind of led us to converge on a virtual fusion center sort of multidisciplinary approach, really to make sure that the right stakeholders are brought in to manage the events and the incidents. And not just engineering, but legal compliance, the risk division, privacy, et cetera. I think the other thing that we've started to see, and I think Matt touched on this a little bit around phishing, is we're starting to see an uptick in phishing campaigns and just the volumes of other security events. So it's led us to think about investing significantly in automation, right, to help us and, and other vendor solutions just to help us manage and kind of triage these events. Matt touched on something that's really, really important around just being Intel-led. So the CERT team is Intel-led is very key. And having some of those trusted sharing relationships with other organizations, it helps you kind of build that margin, right? A margin of safety to get ahead of various threats that might be a risk to the sector. So those are several ways that we've evolved. I'd say the last one is we focused a lot more on drilling and preparedness. Right. And I think that's extraordinarily important for us. So not just tabletop exercise sitting around the table talking about, but actually validating that your capabilities work as you expect. So if you think you have a capability to isolate hosts, let's validate that. If you think you have a capability to restore and recover, let's validate that too. So I think those are some important changes that have happened over the last few years. And just to take a quick step back, just to give some context, just in broad terms, how many of these various types of attacks does the average bank on Wall Street deal with every day? You can deal with dozens, right? Sometimes it's dozens. And phishing attacks, a campaign could definitely come in in the hundreds, sometimes in thousands. But we'll see between someone trying to do some sort of business email compromise attack to someone doing something with our brand. So you're a busy guy. (laughs) Uh, The team's very busy, yes. I mean, clearly there's been some very high profile ransomware attacks. Colonial pipeline hack, there was the solar winds attack just to name a couple. Um, So are there any lessons learned from some of those examples that you've been able to apply or or in general, people in the space have been able to apply? High-profile attacks, ransomware attacks, certainly that occurred against Colonial Pipeline. We've also heard most recently about Kaseya, 
they underscore the importance of what we talk about a lot is just having this sort of layered approach to cybersecurity or this defense in depth approach to cybersecurity. And in some ways, what that means is just employing some good practices around hygiene. So we've got practices called least privilege access, right? Don't give out more privilege or access than is needed. A very, very strong focus on vulnerability management, understanding what vulnerabilities are exposed to your environment and working on mitigations, patching them, closing them, but just having a really good understanding of that. Phishing, testing, but also training. I think Matt talked about, you know, 95% of all malware techs start with some sort of phishing. So some sort of training there. And then just aggressive patching. These all help reduce that attack surface. I think the other lesson that was learned and became front and center and is continues to be when you look at things like Colonial Pipeline and Kaseya is organizations are getting really, really focused now on their third and fourth party risks, right? And it got them to think about their critical vendors and ensure that those critical vendors have some awareness of those threats and understand how those vendors are mitigating those threats. I think the other thing that's come out in ransomware is really just having a strong handle on your asset inventory. You know, several of the victims of ransomware Parts of the network that were impacted, they didn't have a good understanding that this was connected to their network or this was on their network. So I think those are some key things that were lessons. The last piece I would suggest is organizations should consider participating in a bug bounty program. So these bug bounty programs basically incentivize software researchers or security researchers to report and disclose vulnerabilities in a responsible way on things that are on your internet facing properties. So, you know, the very, very talented researchers focused specifically on certain software packages, and then they can let you know that you might have a vulnerability. And I think that also helps in the face of these kind of ransomware attacks. In response to these events, there's been a range of proposed cybersecurity legislation that's been put on the table. Are there any particular provisions of the proposals that you're watching that you expect will have an impact on the private sector? Matt, maybe you can answer that. Once you get into legislation, a couple of them that we are watching and they're making their way through Congress is the Cyber Incident Reporting Act and the Ransomware Disclosure Act. And I think these are worth watching for us and the sector. I think the biggest area that we're going to have to come to an agreement on between public and private sector is what constitutes a cyber incident, right? Because a lot of the basis of these bills are quick, very quick, almost real-time reporting of incidents, but we have to define what that means. And within the bills, they use terminology like, you know, substantial cyber incident or substantial attempt. What does that mean? I think the focus, again, on incident reporting, I think that's a good thing, but we just need to make sure we know what we're signing up for and that it's absolutely crystal clear what our responsibilities are. You've mentioned increased collaboration between the public and private sector a couple of times. Wes, maybe you can elaborate, you know, are there more opportunities to see that type of collaboration in the space? Yeah, for sure. I think there are definitely always opportunities to kind of increase this collaboration in the space. I think they can be done in a couple of ways, either direct engagement, also via partnerships. So some of the direct engagement, you can or organizations can become members of the Cyber Information Sharing Collaboration Program, so the CISCP. And it's a part of DHS CISA, so the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency. And when you engage there, you're able to share, receive information about cyber threats and also just attend just various technical exchanges. There's also a routine just engagement with the FBI through an organization called the NCFTA, so the National Cyber Forensics Training Alliance. That includes one daily information sharing, but also weekly threat calls. 
And I would also encourage organizations just to think about direct engagement with the FBI. They're just really good relationships to form well ahead of the time that you might be dealing with a crisis. On the partnership side, so there's the ARC, the Analysis and Resilience Center. There's lots and lots of engagement with the U.S. government from the risk and intel side with members of the ARC. And then also the FSISAC, so the Financial Services Info Sharing and Analysis Center. They have some subgroups that also focus on improving ways to collaborate with federal partners and also just help identify other ways to engage with the government. Andy, let's bring you into the conversation. As I said, you're the chief information security officer for the firm's consumer banking business. Compared to other industries, the consumer and retail sectors seem more vulnerable to cyber attacks due to the nature of its online traffic and the design, of course, of its e-commerce websites. Can you talk about how cyber attacks and security efforts in the consumer space have evolved? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, it obviously mirrors the way we've seen threats develop more generally. But as the famous bank robber once said when asked why rob banks, it's because that's where the money is. And often, you know, these sorts of cyber crimes are financially motivated. So the banks are clearly a target. And I think that's challenging because we can't put, you know, huge walls and moats and obstructions around people's interactions with our sites and with our digital services, um, or it would impede the user experience too much and the relationship with the customers. So what we need to do is we need to find a way of balancing that user experience of the customer with maintaining the security posture to prevent fraud, to prevent account takeovers. And that's always a bit of a balancing act to just get that right and make sure that we aren't making it too difficult for our actual customers to access their accounts by making it difficult for attackers to. And the other thing is, you know, that's been mentioned previously is around that defense in depth aspect. One of the things now is that we've now effectively globalized attacks. So so many attackers all over the world that can try and attack and compromise systems. And that means that if you have a vulnerability, it's not a question of, you know, if it will be exploited. Sooner or later, someone is going to come across that and they're going to try and exploit it. And that makes it vitally important to have defense in depth. And that's not just defense in depth in one aspect. That's defense in depth with regards to your processes and practices, as well as with regards to your controls and also your assurance activities. The example Wes gave around the importance of patching and maintenance. Well, you can do that by rebuild and repave environments where you're just sort of continually replacing the infrastructure with fresh up-to-date infrastructure to make sure that it stays well-maintained. And that's one way of keeping on top of patches. But equally, you don't stop running a vulnerability scanner that's looking to see if there is any vulnerable systems or libraries within that environment and then going after those and patching those. You want to be running both of those things in order to make sure that you've got that defense in depth with regards to your assurance activities. And so, you know, we really apply that sort of mindset across the design, build and operate life cycle of our products. Um, make sure that we have more than one mechanism in place to stop any given type of attack or make sure any given activity is working as we'd expect. The other aspect of this is, of course, the rise of cybercrime makes consumers more reluctant to hand over their data. Obviously, we're living in this increasingly digitized world and there's a lot of concerns around that. You know, what are companies doing to protect their data while assuaging consumers' concerns around these issues? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a mixed one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, there's a reluctance to share data and information and use digital services because of the risk. But equally, there's sometimes oversharing. And in fact, sometimes one can actually lead to a risk in the other. Um, You know, we've, I'm sure, seen some of these social media 
campaigns asking questions which are you know kind of fun about your background and you know where you grew up and things but if those are also security questions associated with an account that can be problematic so i think there's a lot of uncertainty with people in terms of they're wanting to share and they're wanting to be open but at the same time they are concerned and i think there's been so many large breaches that i think there's also a little bit of numbness to it now But I think the key thing is that responsible organizations will invest in their programs. They will put their customers first. They will be looking for all of the options they can to protect those customers. And in general, I think that banks have a reasonably good track record of succeeding at that. But that's not by carrying on doing what we've always been doing. That's by continually running to stay still. Because the attacks are evolving all the time and we need to evolve our programs and our technology and practices and processes to keep pace with that. Matt, let me turn back to you. What are some of the best practices to improve cybersecurity awareness among employees? I think awareness now is much different than it was maybe five years ago. I think the media has played a big role in that. And I think every one of us has gotten that email or that letter that says your information has been breached. And I think it makes our job a lot easier as cyber practitioners around, you know, making sure that folks are aware of what to do and what not to do. I do think, however, that keeping the topic in the forefront is really important. And that starts at the board with senior leadership and, of course, all of our employees. I think one of the best sort of methods that I've seen is really things like phishing testing, right? So obviously, computer-based training, these are good. October, Cyber Month, you know, having the discussions around uh, cyber awareness, I think those are good. But I think testing provides somewhat of a unique learning moment. Right. So where you know the firm will send out a phishing test and when you when you click on it, you get a pop-up that says, Hey, you know, this was a phishing email. You know, if this was a true phishing email, then a bad thing could have happened. So I think that's one of the most effective that I've seen it as talked about. I mentioned earlier, phishing is typically the front door to the beginnings of a cyber breach. And so I think we use that to great effect. And I think you know other firms in the sector have used that to great effect. So let's end with a question for all three of you. How do you see cyber threats and cybersecurity evolving in the next five to 10 years? Matt, maybe you start. Yeah, I think first I have to say it has to evolve. You know, just uh, not too long ago, a bad actor group called the Shadow Brokers stole quite a bit of nation state level tools. So all that sophisticated tooling is now in the marketplace. They sold it on the dark web. So clearly, I think the way we defend has to change. I think some of the emerging technologies like deep learning, artificial intelligence, machine learning, I think, think about a malicious software, a piece of malicious software that has AI built into it, that is built to evade defenders. I mean, that's pretty scary stuff. Obviously, the new emerging technologies like blockchain and quantum computing really will impact the way firms think about cyber defense. So I think leveraging technology is super important. And it's a bit of a cat and mouse game between you know, the bad folks and the good folks. And I think we've got to be able to use these technologies to defend before the bad folks use them to attack. And I think there's been a lot of progress in that space. You hear about some of these new technologies like homomorphic encryption or you know, quantum key distribution. Right? These are technologies geared specifically to meet that threat. I think also one thing I would say, moving to the cloud, I mean, a lot of companies have a lot of legacy technologies or tech debt. So moving to the cloud you know, in a more of a cyber pristine environment, I think is also a great leap. And so I think we're going to see a very technology-driven defense, a very data-driven defense philosophy over the next five, 10 years. Wes, anything to add? Yeah, I think I definitely agree with all that. I think we're all going to be employed for a long time in this space. But honestly, I think vigilance is key. So I do think being attacked 
And Target is going to continue to be a way of life, right? That we've talked about there's more connectedness, right? There's further digitization of everything, money, et cetera. So it makes for a larger attack service and target of opportunity for bad actors. We touched on things like automation. I mean, we're looking at things like capabilities that can basically automate a SOC analyst. Right? All the decisioning that a SOC analyst might go through when they see a case from a particular sensor, there's companies that have a vision to try and automate that. So I think capabilities like that will be key for us. It'll free up our analysts to focus on more high order things like some of the machine learning and the data analysis that Matt referenced. And I'm also optimistic that things like the Biden administration executive orders, but also the committed investment from various companies and government entities to improve cybersecurity will keep raising that baseline for security and make us all safer. And Andy, anything to add from the consumer space side? In terms of future state, I mean, one of the things is that I don't actually subscribe to we're losing the battle, as it were, because, yes, we're seeing more incidents. We're seeing more mega breaches and greater impact. But that's actually from a much more secure baseline than we had a few years ago, certainly a few decades ago. And in actual fact, it's really an example that the prevalence of attackers and attempted data breaches and the development of business models around that has driven up the amount of people trying to attack and trying to find vulnerabilities. But the actual number of, you know, the quality of software is getting better from a security point of view. And the quality of infrastructure is getting better to Matt's point with regards to, you know, the pristine cloud environment, giving you a fresh baseline, a fresh capability. Now, you know, the key thing, of course, is to make sure that when mistakes do happen, they can't be immediately exploited by attackers. So I think the race continues. Uh, the requirement for defense in depth continues. Um, the management of complexity, the management of supply chain risk, and actually making sure that everyone is operating at a really high standard is essential. Otherwise, you know, a weakness in one area can actually then have ripples that impact other organizations that thought they were on a firmer footing. But I do subscribe that this is something we're getting better at. And, you know, it's not the sort of thing that you ever can declare you've won, but we're getting better at it. And, you know, I think we and the governments of the world need to help support businesses and the supply chain generally to get better at it together so that there aren't weaker links that allow attackers in. Well, Matt, Wes, and Andy, thank you for sharing your insights on what is clearly a really rapidly changing space. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Allison. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and comment. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. 
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.